I'm James Edmondson, and you're listening to Ono Radio. I'll be honest, this episode was recorded in July. But some things, like the work of our guests, are timeless. I talked with Chris Sowersby for almost two hours, which makes this the longest Ono Radio episode in history. You know Chris's work. It's top-notch in both concept and execution. And frankly, I hate him. Because he can take even the most well-trodden thing, like, I don't know, Helvetica or Times, and still manage to do it in a way that even the most jaded graphic designers could find it compelling. Chris's type foundry is called Klim. You know that already. It's on Future Fonts. But what you might not know is the Future Fonts Slack channel. I've seen Chris being super helpful, offering sound advice on topics about pricing and ethics. You know who doesn't take a ton of time to write helpful posts there? Me. Our conversation gets a bit raw, and Chris talks about his mom sadly passing away. When I re-listened to that part, I found myself struggling to fully understand his grief. But since this episode, I've lost my brother. So if my reaction sounds a little bit like someone who's just unable to fully empathize, well, I think my reaction now would be a little bit different. Anyways, sorry to be a bummer. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris Sowersby. I'm in a garage, okay? Garage? Ooh, a shed. We'd call it a shed. Mm-hmm. A garage yeah, is where shed. you'd put a car. A shed is where you go and do shit. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a shed then, for sure. It's where I do shit. Yeah? Power tools? Yeah. Oh, you wouldn't believe. There's a curtain just beyond this frame, this monitor. And then I have all my woodworking stuff just on the other half of the of the garage. That must be cathartic. After fucking around with Bezier, you can go and just hammer something. You know, I think it is cathartic. I think it's the stakes are a lot higher because it's uh, really dangerous. You know, is that? Are you pretty? Like, lo- are you pretty loose? <laughs> it's it. Yeah, you could like for sure lose it, lose a finger. Like the the previous generation of woodworkers, very common to have a missing finger you know tools have gotten a lot better and stuff and now we got like the table saw with the flesh detection stuff that'll like stop the saw if it runs into your finger what how does it amazing um we had woodworking at school i don't know if you had that like high school metalwork woodwork bone carving that sort of shit and i buzzed the tip of Uh my thumb once with a bandsaw and i've never fucking forgot it like i was i think i got about halfway in and i still don't have a feeling on the tip of it but like that was enough. It was like, yeah, this is actually fucking dangerous. Like I could, gotta be, you know, because as a teenager, you're like, oh, I'll be fine. How hard can it be? What could go wrong? And you're like, oh, actually, yeah, could go quite wrong. Yeah, I never did that stuff in school. I wish I could have uh, had the opportunity. My parents were very focused on me learning uh, typing, so they they kind of forced me into like, <laughs> a weird processing. Typing, like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just learning how to type, you know, counting your words per minute and stuff like that. They're like, this is a skill that you will use in the future. Are you a good typist? You wouldn't believe it, man. I'm fucking flying over here. Really? I'm like 110 words per minute. No, I'm a very average typist. I think like it was just the classic dick around elective where people would go in there and chit chat you know we would just kind of hang out with our friends we would like instant message our friends and stuff for an hour every day and it was like a total 
a waste of time educationally, but it was kind of a fun class to be in, I think. We had a computer lab too, It was, and we got taught... Um, it was basic computer skills because that was like, you know, when high, this would have been mid-90s, so computers were identified as being, you know, fuck, everyone's going to be using these soon. So we had a special uh-huh. lab, and I'm pretty sure they were Macs, um, and we had a Scottish woman who was the accounting teacher, and all we can remember is her saying to us in a really thick Scottish accent for typing, like, keep your fingers on the home keys! Like, with this, <laughs> had this concept of home keys that you had to keep your fingers on, and... Like, and we just didn't learn anything, really, Um, until someone figured out how to hack, like, because I went to boarding school, like, they figured out that the local network, which is pretty primitive, the local LAN, that we get Quake going on it, and so a lot of fucking, a lot of Quake. I'm very good at first-person shooters now, but quite terrible at typing. So we used to play Quake. I started uh, in graphic design working for my brother's company, which was like a tech startup in San Francisco. And all the developers were hardcore Quake players. And I played with them like one time. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. I hate these sorts of games. (laughs) They're not fun for me. I'm just getting my ass handed to me. It's embarrassing. And I have never made... Are you a gamer? You probably are on Twitch, aren't you? No, I'm not on Twitch. Um, I've recently got back into it a little bit, yeah. I was, like, yeah, ever since I got on in front of a screen, it was, um, I was quite interested in games and computers too. But like a, uh, like as a, um, like I was interested in computers because it was fascinating. It was technology and it was new. And the first computer we got at home was like a 286 PC that dad had got. I don't know why the fuck he got it, but he got one. And this was pre-internet and it was the big five and a quarter or five and a half inch floppies that you'd put in and it had a dot matrix printer. And within like two weeks, it had some sort of primitive operating system. I don't think it was Windows. And I fucked it. Like I got into the command line, I got into DOS and I wrecked it. And then from then it would only ever boot to DOS and nobody else could really use it except me. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So you've ruined it for everyone in your family? Kind of. That's, well, I mean, when you you frame it like that. But yeah, nobody else was really that interested in it. But we could figure out, you know, got pirated games from a mate and, you know, like disc one of 400 to install Doom when we kind of upgraded Uh anyway. But yeah. Um. You started at your brother's design firm. I always wondered how you got started. What drew you from, like, typing class Whoa, to... whoa, whoa. Who's interviewing who, first of all? Oh, it's a two-way <laughs> conversation, mate. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah, I don't know. I just was really unenthused at the school that I was going to. And then uh, I went to two years of college over here where I grew up. So it was like very boring. Didn't make any friends. My brother Paul invited me up to San Francisco to be an intern at his tech company, basically to make PowerPoint decks. And um, I was like, great, that sounds super fun. And then I moved up to San Francisco, never went back down. And then I started going to art school in San Francisco. And then it was just kind of you know, going to KBK after that and stuff like that. That's a big big leap, like going from art school to type media. Like that's quite a jump. I mean, I was the only person who did it at my school, or I think the only student in history to go from that school to KBK. It's not that popular of a school, you know. 
But to me, it was like the most obvious move. It was like the only thing that made any sense to me at the time. And no one was anything but super encouraging, you know? So it was just like a total no brainer, which is weird because it's, you know, fairly obscure. But so you're a, you're like a 10 year old, a 12 year old hacking your family computer and, and ruining it. And, um, and then when does type design come in for you? Cause that's pretty early, right? Well, no, type design didn't come in until design school. So I went to the Wanganui school of design Well, polytech. It was a polytech, but then it had a joint degree with someone else. So it was, I actually have a Bachelor of Computer Graphic Design, a BCGD, Ooh. no less. Like, I love that it says Computer Graphic Design in it, not like Visual Communication or anything. So it was a big deal. Anyway, I went from there in 2000, well, 2001, one of them. And I don't know, it was computers and it was design. And I was at high school, I was quite, I was always interested in art and drawing and comics and um sculpting with clay photography all that sort of shit and i remember one day like in my last year my teacher sat me down and was like you know what do you want to do after school you know the big i always thought i was going to go i always wanted to go into special effects in hollywood to make like because i was obsessed with the terminator alien predator and i had the books of stan winston sort of stuff all of his work and i was like this would be the coolest job and then I consciously remember, I was just like, no, I said that to him and he's like, yeah, you could do that. And then, you know, we'd probably have to move to LA and that was terrifying for a New Zealander. And I realized, yeah. oh, this is just, it would never happen. Ironically, that was the same year that all of the Lord of the Rings stuff was starting to gear up. So they were hiring. Oh. So I didn't know it was happening here. Like that's like, you know, and I went through where to workshops one year because I just down the road actually. And I saw what they were doing. I was like, man, 18-year-old me, this is what I thought this was the business. Like, this would have been the coolest uh-huh. job. So anyway, wiped that out. Talked to my teacher and he was like, you know, <laughs> he was a, he'd been a designer and he was an artist too. And he was like, if you want to be an artist, that's cool. But it's very difficult. And you could probably <laughs> just do it in your spare time if you wanted to. There's more of a career stability in graphic design. And that was it. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, career stability. That sounds good. So went overseas for a year, came back, and then enrolled in graphic design. Um, I also had a tutor who went there too, and he showed me some of the projects they were doing, like some of the things. He he took me into the computer labs. I was like, fuck, computers. And that was about it. They had sort of some 3D stuff that he was doing. And, so you know, just making imagery and doing layouts and things and so this would have been and we had a computer in our art art room at high school um Mm -hmm. one of the translucent imax you know the oh yeah the lolly looking the candy blobs um Mm -hmm. and then another one it had freehand and had photoshop and i did like a school magazine on it and i was like this is cool You know, we had we had books of Neville Brody, we had mm-hmm. some Carson books, mate. Printers dead, <laughs> which um, <laughs> which is still you know a pretty severe meme. Were you a good student? What do you mean? I don't know. Did you get good grades? Yes. I thought you meant was I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was all right. <laughs> Where did you think I was going with that question? Conscientious. 
did I pay attention and was I not an asshole? Um, oh. Okay, answer those. Uh, I don't know. Hard to know what you're like, isn't it? Which is a way of skirting around you. I was probably a bit of a prick. Um, but I really liked it. Like arts, uh, you know, the art room at, at high school was, you know, basically a refuge for all the kind of freaks and non-jocks, basically. Right. Um, so I went to computer des- graphic design and, yeah, it was great. And then sort of got into, learned about typography, type one with the weather report assignment. I don't know if you ever did that. It was like an American. Nope. We had American tutors. Actually, the school was started by Americans. They'd come over. And right. so, and they were very au fait with Apple and the kind of Mac technology. Mac mm-hmm. technology, I sound like a boomer. But anyway, like <laughs> all of that stuff. And they were very early adopters of the web and interactive and stuff like that. And so that school propagated quite a lot of forward-thinking students. Um, but old Muggins over here wasn't that into, you know, the forward-thinking stuff or wanted to make fucking letters <laughs> of all things. And so... How did you How did you get... How did you stumble on that? Though? I don't know. That's I mean, you, we, just had to, we just had to use fonts, you know? Like, and yeah. then you'll say, like, oh, people design fonts. Oh, I can open this up in font shop. Font, what was it at the time? Fontographer, maybe. And fiddle around yeah. and make, you know, make my own. And I started drawing them and... I don't know, man. Like, it just probably the same way for you. Like, you do it. I really like language. I like reading. I like writing. It just seemed, typography seemed like a natural extension of that. I'm not particularly good with colour. I'm a mediocre designer. But I don't know. It just, I just got it. And then I remembered when I was a kid, we had this thing called the lettering book, Mm -hmm. which was, well, I have a copy here. Um... Basically, before computers, when you had to do your your assignments and things, you had to do title pages and stuff. And you know, you could and it, you, it was for, for kids for copying lettering. Basically, it was a lettering manual with a sort of basic grid and you know how to I don't know copy letters. And I really liked that. Remember the black letter ones? They were always cool. And you know, you do your highlight. I don't know if this is I don't know what generation of you guys did it, but you could do your title page, you highlighter borders, and then you could do pen around the outside and it was all real black. I put so much time into the title pages. Oh. And then just sort of ignored everything else. I don't and then it just sort of letters, man. It's just I don't know. <laughs> do you remember the the first like kind of moments of like being able to type with something that you created and being like Holy shit. Yeah, that was pretty special. When you get your first sort of primitive font up and running, eh? Like that was, I think the first ones are an illustrator and then found someone had a cracked font lab or a fontographer, I don't know, and then I could sort of dick around with them as like, man, this is, this is quite special. It is quite a special, it's yeah. still quite a special feeling now, right? Like test installing from RoboFont and then kind of cracking open whatever app you're using or... It never, it never went away for me. I still get really excited in that first kind of beginning phase of it. And then it becomes a bit of a slog that you just kind of have to suffer through to then reward yourself with that feeling of starting out again. You know, that's how it is for me. There's nothing quite as good as the first sort of few moments, is there? You're like, yeah, I've cracked it, I've got it, and then it's the slog, and then from there it's just sort of like diminishing returns until like four years later when it start, the sales kick in and other people use it. Like, it is a long Oh, that, 
that's that's it's different for us, man. I don't think it. I I mean, we're totally different kind of library. But you're thinking it takes four years for the sales to kick in on your stuff? No. <laughs> well, I'd say it takes about four years to get an idea of whether it's a good seller or not. Like it's rare for us. I mean, we sell on the launch day, but it's not a good indication of long-term viability. Well, right. You're not getting those hefty commercial sales on the first day. No. And I think it takes about four years in for, I don't know, the the mild trauma to wear off of the whole project because (laughs) even on launch day, you know, and even right now, say for me, we're looking at Epicene in the future, is looking at, I can still see the mistakes and I have regrets. I'm like, why didn't I fix that? Why didn't I do this? Like it takes a while for all that to peter out, I think, to sort of normalize. And so you can look at it with fresh eyes, I guess, and sort of an unbiased sort of outsider's view. Um, I mean, there's excitement for launch, but it's the launching of it, not the thing itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I think the excitement for the launch is is just gone just like immediately like kind of a, a week before or, or a couple of months leading up to it can be really fun but then when it's out and it just becomes something that you have to or you feel some duty to market or put out there in some way like that's not nearly as fun as I don't know, the first couple moments are, are actually getting close to it being a finished thing. Like, I talked to, you know, the director, Gary Hustwood, does all the design uh, documentaries. I talked to him at a premiere one time, and he was like, I hate these. Like, this is the worst thing that I could possibly be doing. I would never want to be at a premiere of one of my films. Well, you have to do it. You have to kind of tour around with it he just wants he said he wants to be working on the next one and i was like oh that sounds like bullshit man like isn't it fun to have like a bunch of your fans and stuff show up and and he was like no i'm just this isn't this isn't my thing or or kind of the reason he's into it but i don't know how's it for you launch day emotion wise (laughs) emotion wise yeah um It's always, look, because we aim to have our stuff, because obviously the time zones, it's what, half past eight here and time is it there? Half past six? Five? We're at one thirty. Well, one thirty. Well, there you go. So, and you've got two coasts. And so the States are our biggest customers. And so we aim to launch when the States and Berlin and London basically are awake because that covers quite a lot of stuff, which means about three in the morning, like switching everything live for us. I never right, sleep particularly right. well <laughs> because it's not like now where it's like I'm awake and it's good, we could hit go. It's just, you know, I would have been awake uh-huh. for five hours stupidly looking at Twitter, you know, just thirsty for the comments <laughs> of people ignoring this, what's happening, watching the email open rates. Because it's, it's, you know, like I used to just turn it on on the website and tweet and then forget about it. But now it's like a whole fucking managed production. Um, are you uh, are you uh, looking for the dopamine hit? Or are you going to Twitter and looking for that stuff to some degree? Oh, I'm actually mainly looking for if anything's going wrong. 
Was the home page broken yeah. or the dev test fonts fucked? Are there typos in the design information? Because I've committed myself, James. I've committed myself <laughs> to not just releasing a font, but for writing a fifty million word fucking essay about it. <laughs> yeah, why do you why do you do that? Oh <laughs> god. It is, it's really <sighs> Seriously, seriously, why why is that why are the essays such an important part for you? Well, that's a good question. Because they're thorough, man. Thorough, yeah. Is that your polite way of saying I need an editor? Because I fucking do. Um, no, I I think I'll, I think anyone who kind of runs a foundry, uh, it works best if kind of you're involved in the marketing of it. And those essays are just kind of a form of marketing, I think, at the end of the day. Um, Partially, yes. they there must be a reason that you put that amount of time into it. Well, I like writing. I like the process of it. It's sort of, it's cathartic. Uh, there's several reasons, but primarily it's me writing to me 20 years ago. As I, this mm-hmm. is how it happened. This is where it came about. These are the ideas. Mm-hmm. These were the sources. It's, um, I think of it as, sort of educational mm-hmm. for people who are, you know, into it. Because it doesn't just come from nowhere. For a long time, fonts were released, and it was really hard to find out where they came from, you know. And I'm right. sitting here surrounded by a whole lot of Caslon shit because I've decided maybe the world needs another Caslon. Um, <laughs> and, so <laughs> and so you've got this, you know, like ye oldie specimen, it was beautifully uh-huh. produced, the old rag paper and all the rest of it. And it's like, but why? Why, why did fucking Bill decide that he wanted to make a cool font, you know? Uh-huh. Where did it... <laughs> Bill. Yeah, Bill, you know, like... Because all we have is sort of second-hand, third-hand reports. And I don't know, like... Mm-hmm. I think it's important to write it all down and to get it there and something to refer back to later on. And also it can form the basis for a presentation or like a, if you need to right. talk at a conference, like the body of it and the structure of it is there. And, yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's just become part of it. And when we redid the website in 20 whatever it was, 18, before Zerna launched, mm-hmm. I was going to drop it. I was like, fuck it, I'm sick of this. I really can't do it anymore. Um, and then, you know, Spring Light, the people who did this website, we looked at all the stats, like, no, nah, man, you get heaps of traffic, and they're really good. Like, there's a sil- big silent audience for it. It's not like it's not like the typerati on Twitter who are always talking to each other. Like, this is uh-huh. a lot of designers and students who read it and absorb it, and, you know, they don't feel the need to kind of discuss it on social media and I get sort of occasional emails from like students in Argentina saying you know this is thanks man like this was part of our course material we, we yeah. you know yeah, yeah. it's been really good and it was sort of blow, blew me away I'm like oh fuck okay I better you know I better it's a it's worth it's a worthwhile thing to keep doing yeah. um even though it is a massive albatross around my neck well I mean it is if you hate it if it's if you like writing, I think it's just another part of the job that you designed for yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, I don't know. A lot of people do it, which is great. Because I find them quite interesting to read because there's the market. 
I mean, you said it's marketing and it is partially that, but primarily it's not really. Like it doesn't, I don't think, I think a 3,000 word essay on Futura alternates is going to fucking sell the horse, is it? Like it's not, it's not going to be the major decision when a purchase. I, I don't know. This is, I think it 100% is marketing. I think anything that's not your library is marketing. Any effort oh, yeah. that you're putting into your business. Essentially, is it might be kind of a couple steps removed from what we like normally think of as marketing. But I don't know. You're just saying, hey, we're pretty thorough over here. And we've actually <laughs> done the work. And uh, we are proving to you that we did the work. Because we're showing, I, I like that book, Show Your Work, by Austin Kleon. That kind of is, is his take on social media, which is just like, all you should do is sh- show all your thinking in stuff. Because it might not be the most TikTok-friendly piece of marketing in the world. But, yeah, these things are getting shared with students. I think it's probably just marketing at a higher level than we're used to. But... Hold on, I want to go back to your Caslon thing. Why does the world need another Caslon? Oh, I don't know, man. Like that's a whole philosophical can of worms. If you open that motherfucker, you're not going to make any more fonts. Like you'd be crippled <laughs> with indecision. <laughs> and so, I mean, the first thing you should think is like, it doesn't, and who cares? Like, I want to do it, and so I'm going to do it. But that's what it comes down to. Like, you could sit here and like. Why does the world need more fonts? Like, does it? Not really. No, I, I, I don't. Yeah, it was. I think it was you who said. Well, I've thought that the world needs another Caslot, so I wanted to say why. I don't think the world needs any of my fonts or or me or anything. We'll get along just fine without it. But for me, it's essentially like a, a kind of coping mechanism. I think it's just like survival. Yeah, but. Having said that, the world is a better place for your fonts in it, isn't it? Like, wow. It is. Because if you, <laughs> if you wiped out Ono oh from the last, should we say, 10 years? 15 years? Six, seven. Oh, let's say 10. All right, because let's just get rid of it and imagine the sort of typographic landscape now. It would be a little less richer, wouldn't it? You know, like... It's a fucking good age that we're living in now for type design. There's heaps of people doing it, and it's all over the place. It is good. Like, it is great. And I think I think we should all be having a go at, you know, I think everybody should be doing their Futura. I think everybody should be doing their Helvetica, their whatever, you know. Okay. Like, I see yeah. them as, like, standards in a sense. Like, it's, there's not yeah. one anymore. The one that existed was in metal, and now that's gone. And so it's essentially... It's almost not a duty or a right, but or an obligation, really. But it's I think it's it should happen. Like if you had, I mean, you have jazz standards and you have kind of folk songs and you have kind of genre tropes and you have movies and storylines and not all that's very particularly different over the years, you know. But what makes it good is that everybody has a go at it in their time with their tools and with their technology, you know. Do you remember Van Blocklin sent that thing around fucking years ago and he got a whole lot of designers to digitize a Caslon yeah. N and they were yeah. all different? 
Yeah. Like on the one hand, it proves that like it's really hard if it points match up in a typeface and it's clearly pirated. But on the other hand, it's like this is wild, man. Like we all have yeah. very different ideas about how to digitize this one shape. I mean, that's not what type design is. I'm not just sort of wrapping busy ears around old kind of letterpress forms. But I mean, it's, it's kind of like that blew my mind in a way. I, was like, I thought there'd be way more overlap, but there wasn't. And that'll multiply out. Across the weights yeah. and the spacing and the style and blah, 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 you know. Totally. But, you know, just to play devil's advocate in this, Van Blockman also says stuff like, if a typeface exists that does the job, why would you recreate the same thing that does the same job? You know, like that's that's what he says. I personally am into this idea, the metaphor of guitar pedals, where every guitar pedal company cranks out the same stuff essentially there's so much overlap in what the various companies make guitar pedals are just a, a good example because it's relevant to me and there's just like so many overdrive pedals so many fuzz pedals and, and that sort of thing and yeah your metaphor of the jazz standards i think is kind of interesting i haven't heard that before well i mean yeah and sort of theory tales and things i don't know like there's things that get repeated over and over and they become a viable source. Like it's a wellspring for new stuff. And I don't particularly think the onus, I have a very tenuous relationship with originality. Like I'd much rather be good than original. I don't give a fuck about originality and so much. Like I used to, it was like a thing. I was like, oh my God, it has to be different. It was basically what that idea that's in your head from Van Blockland. That's quite a tight media thing, isn't it? Because I remember in another interview I listened with you and Rutherford, you said his voice is in your head. Oh, dude, it, he is he's it for me. He's always in my head. <laughs> I'm a, another process article right now where I'm referencing for like referencing him for like the twelfth time in, in one of these process articles. It's huge because I mean, on one hand, he's he's kind of a he's quick to call bullshit, you know? Um and I, I like that. I kind of like people who are just upfront and honest. Something great about uh, Dutch people in general. I think. <laughs> but uh, he's also, you know, I think just one of my favorite type designers, too. So I got to pay attention to what he's saying. As I've gotten away from school, though, it's kind of been this distancing thing where I'm like, all right, not everything he said or has said is uh, the gospel anymore and I have to figure this stuff out for my own you know that's what every student has to do when they kind of like leave school is ask themselves or kind of question their teachers because they kind of have the time or mental real estate to do so you know so that's that's where I am with it but I just don't like anything that gets in like that stops someone from taking creative action you know and this thought of originality is huge for that, you know, because it, it would just paralyze so many people. But is it is it that you don't believe that it's possible to be, or is it more like you just don't care about it? Um, it's very, it's possible, but it's very difficult because, I mean, for type design, man, like we don't have a lot of wiggle room, do we? But it seems like once you get into it, you do. Like old Speakerman reckons we have 95% of it's already done. 
You're like, yeah. no, it's a lot. But I mean, that 5% is <laughs> quite massive, you know, <laughs> in the end. Like, because if you said that to someone, like, 5%, wow, geez, that's not much. Why do you even bother? But it's like, mm-hmm. that's a big 5%. There's a, a lot of wiggle room. And I think the idea of, you know, originality is, it's a modern thing. Like, up until the last, what, 100 years, maybe? Yeah, no one cared. There was, no, no one cared. There was guild systems. There was apprenticeships. You know, you copied the masters until you found your own voice. Right. It was a process of learning. And like, you know, your, when did you, when you, when would you date the start of your own practice? Like 10 years? 15? When I was 19 years old? Yeah, when did you first start drawing letters? You know, when we, where should we date this journey? Oh, say 22. Eh? 22. So how many years ago was that? I don't know, 13. 13 years ago? So in the old systems, <laughs> would you, you'd be up to what? Being allowed to justify punches, maybe. <laughs> like, you, you would. <laughs> but the interesting about this Kazon thing, and Antonio Capodoni put me on to it, was like, Joseph Jackson was working in the Kazon foundry, and they wouldn't let him, <laughs> apparently they wouldn't teach him how to cut punches and so he had to peek through a little hole and he had a go at it and then he showed the, the you know he showed the Kazons he was like man look what I did isn't this good and they fucking clipped him around the ears and said no you're not allowed to do this <laughs> can you imagine if that was it like you said that, <laughs> that was your job like you know to manufacture fonts and yeah. they wouldn't teach you how to do it so anyway like have you seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi uh yeah, I have. Do you remember the scene in that where there's the he's the apprentice, he's the lowest level, and he's mm. like not even allowed to cook the rice? Like he yeah. has to spend a very long time getting up to that. Right. You know, but now we're expected the expectation, I think, especially for people coming out of the type design, graphic design schools and stuff, is like straight out of the gate, you've got to be original. You know, you've got right. to have some cut through ideas and you've got to have Whatever, and it's just unrealistic. Because in the old days, you'd be shepherded for a long time, and then finally, you'd find your sort of voice. And I've got old, like, what have we got here? Jay Van Crimpen on designing and designing, <laughs> devising type. Oh, Crimbo, mate, like, he wrote in there. <laughs> he glad he didn't even do anything until he was over 30, you know? Right. And that's... Mm-hmm. Can you imagine starting from, and when did Lexicon get done? Like he was almost done burgers, mate. Like he was at the end of his typesetting career. All right, make some fonts. Yes. And they're brilliant. You know, the two best digital fonts ever. Well, one was photo, but. And so, but when you kind of the expectations of production and social media and you see it all the time, it's like, man, I've got to be original. I've got to be producing. I've got to be making it. It's really hard. Yeah, well, you have to do all those things at the same time, and you have to be, you know, decent at really all of them. It, it, it is, and you have to be aware of what's going on in the world, and be a good parent or, uh, you know, partner, or you need to have an eye on the environment. And there's the responsibilities for a human being or a graphic designer are got to wear a lot of hats. Basically, that's hard. Yeah, and I think 
you mentioned marketing earlier. Look, once upon a time you could, or much, the expectation was like you could design a font and it would be retailed to a reseller, pardon me. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and you'll be right in the thick of this now, like you're doing your own thing from scratch. And so you have to have, design the typeface, write the typeface, market it, you have to do customer support, you have to deal with legal stuff, like the amount of people coming in nickel and diming over paragraphs in our <laughs> license agreements, like you want to reword it so it says the same thing. I mean, <laughs> like it's, you know, people trying to install WAFs um, into font booking, like it's not, oh, you know, like it's the amount of stuff that you have to do as a solo foundry or as an independent foundry is out of control. Are you doing any of that stuff anymore? Yeah, some. We've got a good staff now, like ever since. Um, Before our daughter was born, Jess, uh, my wife, was in between jobs and she came on, you know, and she's, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, maybe I could do, help you do a bit of email support. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And and after a few weeks, She was like, so I've got a few questions. I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you do you have an advertising budget? I'm like, what? And she's like, do you how do you what's your strategy for releasing a font? I'm like, eh? And then she was like, what do you what's your kind of long-term plans of, you know? And I'm like, oh babe, I just <laughs> fucking skin on the teeth here. I just tweet and move on. You know? And she was like, yeah. And so from there set kind of like the groundwork for turning it from just being me in a room making fonts to a proper sort of thing, you know, like enlisting the help of, you know, um, proper web designers and developers and a kind of an agency for doing, for conceptualizing a campaign and framing a typeface and, you know, marketing efforts and hiring support staff and hiring uh, no, to do font mastering and hiring Dave to do like um, font production and and yeah. he, like everybody, you know, and it's it's been amazing. Like to get it from you know me fiddling with Bezier's to a team of people, it's been really good. And it's I don't know how I don't know how I did it earlier. Actually, like some people would like before Jess, it was. Someone come with a tricky licensing question, which I've assured you had. Like it's, we've got some platform and it does X Y Z, and we have to license sub license it to fucking ABC, and you're like, oh god, just use the desktop and don't email me again, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I, I think I left a lot of money on the table because I was trying to save myself a couple of emails, and uh, honestly, it's kind of hard to. Uh, have a, a real problem with that. Like if something is cutting out some amount of bullshit from your life, it it really is worth it to make a license that's maybe a slightly more permissive or something. If it'll actually move the needle on email. But how many how many people is your wife full time? Um, yes, but um, kind of dialing it down to part time. We've got as me and Jess primarily. We've got Peter Deckers who's uh, full-time developer so uh-huh. the website is a oh god he's going on the website uh, full-time yeah about the last three years now like our website is obscene it's 
like four different websites, I'd say, and they're all like now you've got all those really good template systems where you know there's one or two or three maybe backends like Foundry backends that didn't exist a while ago, and so we've got right, the Django and Wagtail and something else, and this, you've got you know, basically got the sales database, you've got the technology database, you've got you know the front end stuff, you've got the back end stuff, you've got blog. Oh fuck, man! The font management, oh, like it's just absurd. Like it's you don't want to see, <laughs> you don't want to lift up the hood, mate. <laughs> Look at it's, it's, but it's working. It and works. You're only selling, you're only selling direct, right? Or are you yes. still selling through Village? I'm still through like Village, um, but not everything. And but yeah, like if something if something broke on your website, for example, who fixes it? We have a we have a team that we worked with, but they're not full time employees. It was a big leap. Like when we launched the new site, um, Peter was on the team at Springload that did it. And uh, that took way longer than we thought it would. And he's great. Like he's, yeah. Um, like he fit, like if I have a, like a dumb idea, it's like, man, why can't we do, can we do this on the website? And he's like, uh, yeah, let me have a go. And then he'll kind of just make it happen or let me know that's actually a week's worth of work and maybe my frivolous dumb ideas shouldn't be entertained for everything. Um, what's your what's your feeling when you see other people uh, with Type Foundry websites that start looking a lot like your website? Going back to the originality thing, I guess. Oh, uh, what do you do? It's the web, it's different. Like it's, I think people see websites as, because it's all there, you've got the code and the functionality and all the rest of it. Like the web culture is just like, oh yeah, we'll take those bits, thank you, because it's out. Imagine trying to copyright a website. I don't know. Like it's it's if it happens quickly, it's annoying. But if it happens a bit later on, it's flattering. I guess you know. <laughs> it depends on how fresh it is, you know. Like if you release a typeface and then like within a month there was. Oh no! Let's say two months or something very similar. You'd be annoyed, but in four years' time, be like, "Cool." <laughs> I'm influencing the culture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and we've also like, so Peter's full time. We've got Sonia, who's our neighbour. She's in Germany at the moment. She does um, support, and which is you know some technical support, sales, vendor onboarding forms. Like I don't know if you deal with those, but. Oh god! Um, like for new employees onboarding? No, for getting into oh, company, friends. like for getting into a company's system, so they can buy a fucking desktop license. It's anyway. Yeah, that's so annoying. I mean, god, it's, uh, it takes a lot of time. Exactly. Uh, I've got Dave Foster in Sydney. Um, Is Dave going full time for your stuff? Uh, he does nice. uh, in total three days. Um, He's a weapon. We've got Noi Blanco in Barcelona, and she's um, engineering and mastering, and mm-hmm. all that ancient font tech voodoo wizardry that I have no idea. And she is amazing. Yeah. She just kind of, I don't know, man. I don't know how she does it, but she does it, and it's awesome. Um, and we've got Lyle Chetty, who is our legal, he's not a lawyer, he's a legal advisor for when curly stuff comes in. Basically, people like Amazon wanted to buy your fonts and nickel and dime over whatever. He says, well, that's fine. This isn't whatever because, you know. And that's part-time. Yeah, that's part-time. That's on. He's basically on call. Better call Saul. Mm-hmm. 
he's got a full-time job otherwise and he's a good mate and he just sort of handles that stuff for us. And then you have accountants who you, we kind of, you know, contract out to and all the rest of it. Like the whole thing, man, like the whole... Yeah. I never thought it would be this. I never thought yeah. we'd be responsible for the livelihoods of several people and I never thought it would be... I never thought the business would get to a point where I don't understand parts of it fully, but I entrust it to others. Yeah, yeah. Like how many have you got? You've got. You've recently hired Colin. We got Colin. He's full time, and um, we have Jamie who does our support. Jamie yep. Otelsberg, Lynn Barber does kind of the licensing stuff, and she also kind of oversees client work, and is in all the meetings with clients, which is just great. And she's got the best background behind her when she's on these calls. I feel like it makes us look really legit. Oh. Um, so it's, it's basically us four. My wife is involved in, in some of the merch stuff and some fun stuff, but that's not too demanding. And basically my goal was to give her as much work as she wanted to do and, and have as much time with the kids as she wanted. And that seems to be working out okay. So it's basically five and then, you know, bookkeepers, tax people and the web people. But those are all like, you know, not uh, less than part time. You know, it's just as needed. But it's it's so nice. Like there are a couple of people who are like, hey, you might want to think about hiring someone or you might want to think about contracting this thing out if you don't like doing it. I should have paid attention to them yes. way, way sooner. Yeah, it's man. It's like, like such an important thing for my emotional well-being. <laughs> I went to like this business problem thing uh, years ago. It was by a bunch of people. It was called the Flounders Club. People were floundering around, I guess, at various stages of their businesses. And you could all just uh-huh. have a moan about what you were struggling with. And this, the group would say, why don't you do this? And I just started bleating on about this, that, and the other thing. And they're all sort of been in the game, their various games a bit longer. And they're just like, why don't you just hire someone to do it? Because at that stage, you're like, you can't imagine that there's other people who like to do the things that you don't like doing. Right, right, exactly. And then you kind of think about it and you're like, oh, there's whole industries dedicated to stuff that you don't really, and it's totally possible. And then, I don't know, it was just such an eye-opener because we, you know, we could recite the history of, Caslon's font to seventeen eighty whatever the shit. Yeah, you could, I could. Oh, you could. You'd have a go at it, but you know. (laughs) But when it comes to sort of that's what we were trained in, or what we've learned to do. But we haven't learned basic business administration or accounting. I mean, I remember like the first accounting course I went to was a freebie, a free course, some local um, polytech, and all I remember from it was don't spend your tax and account for GST. Um, what's GST? Uh, tax, essentially. Like, account, like you charge it on. Make sure you charge it, and like build it onto your fees. You know, because you have your time, and then you chuck the tax on. You don't want the tax to eat onto your profits, and don't spend your tax. You know, like it's about a, you know, because a lot of businesses fail because they spend their tax, and the next year they don't have any money to pay for it. And it's like, right. I'm glad someone told me that. You know, because this is <laughs> this isn't the things that you're taught. How to negotiate, how to deal with whatever. Like it took me a long time to realize for our licenses, for example, that we're not going to change the jurisdiction 
It's New Zealand. We're a New Zealand company. No, we're not going to change it to Delaware or where the shit you're from, you know? Like it's... <laughs> I'm pretty sure Amazon won't let me change the jurisdiction that I'm agreeing to, so neither can you, you know? Yeah. And it's we get a lot of that. Someone... I think it was a UK company. And they're like, okay, how about we split the difference to Australia? And I'm like, that's not how it works. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, closer on a map. <laughs> I know. It's just, yeah. And it was all these things that I never thought I'd ever be dealing with or, I don't know, man. Like, I'm still surprised that Klim's a viable entity. It's sort of, you know, I wake up and look at Stripe and I'm like, Jesus, people have been buying fonts, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's I. That's another thing I never quite get tired uh, uh, get tired of it. Or it's just always kind of amazing to me that an email will show up that says you have more money than you did a moment ago. It's like pretty cool to get the email. But okay, so I also want to talk about your background here because you're in a, a pretty luxurious looking library on one side oh you mean my actual background like the background of this video call that people on the internet listening to the podcast won't see describe it in loving detail go on pretty pretty uh legit looking espresso oh you have a we have a fridge we have some custom cabinetry and shelves i want to say this is not prefab ikea stuff that i'm looking at so where are you? Just talk to me about where you are. I'm in the font bunker, which is, <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Um, it's our studio that we built um, next to the house. Well, the house is just through there, which you can't see. It's a separate building. Downstairs is the studio and upstairs is a guest room. Um, and because when we, about eight years ago, I guess, we built, the house next door, Jess and I, and we never knew we were going to have um, children. And we had a couple of small offices in there, and then we had Indy, our daughter. And then it turned out it's really hard to work from home with a child. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we decided it was next. And she also took up the guest room, the spare room. And so when mum and stuff would mm-hmm. come to stay, she'd be like on a mattress in the living room. We're like, no. <laughs> Maybe for someone dying of cancer, it's not a good idea for her to be lying, sleeping on a mattress in the living room, you know? Yeah. So we decided to build a studio and, you know, it was meant to be a six-month build and it took two years and it was very intense. And here we are. And so this is the first sort of proper office I've ever had. I've always sort of worked mainly from home and it's great, like, to have a separation. And it bleeds into, like... It bleed work bleeds into life, and I wanted we both wanted actually for it to have a hard cut off. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's there's no. Before we had Indy, I was, I managed to get nine to five. Like I would not do any work stuff before nine, and after five, I'd just shut it down and walk away, and it was good. But now, mm-hmm. but then eventually, sort of started to bleed around, and then on weekends, you sort of checking emails and having to think about this, that, and the other thing. Oh, I don't want. It's, it's not a good way. It's not a healthy way to live, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, build all this. There's a library here. This is all Remo, which is a native wood. And it's Remo veneer on the cabinetry back there. Uh, mm-hmm. This table, I don't know if you can see that. There's a, um, yeah. We've got the joiner to make this. He's very good. 
And this disc here is like a, um, one of the few things I got when mum died. It's a, I don't know what it's from. I don't know where she got it from, some secondhand thing cheap. And it's this beautiful inlaid stone marble disc. And so I got him to set it in there. Um, and recently got a wooden, can you see the floor? Oh, you've seen the photos. I sent those through. Parquet floor. Yeah. Um, because we had two goes at doing the concrete and it didn't work. Because uh, concrete, concrete's very difficult, apparently. So, yes, yeah. a long, arduous journey to have an office to draw fonts. Well, it's pretty sick. Um, or it, it looks amazing. Yeah. And I is it doing all the things that you wanted it to do for you? Um, like with work separation? Yeah, it is, actually. Like, it's it's nice to finally have proper shelving for all the books i don't know i mean i can't see any i can see one book in your background but i assume Just there's a lot one. more i assume there's a lot more because there's not that many more i'm i'm not a i'm not a book junkie oh good actually. for you man like it's an affliction <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a diff- yeah it's, well we have the letter from archive here like yes. i could go and kind of start keeping my eye on these auctions and stuff like that but there's no way i could ever i don't know i don't see for me i i think the workshop is that it's like that's the kind of like source input that i want coming in is some sort of action looking at books for me is always like i've just seen too much like i just i've seen i feel like i've seen enough stuff to have a lifetime of cranking things out already, you know, just like looking at Instagram for five minutes. I feel like I've seen too much. I've know? seen too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, but like, I want to go back to that point because you've got the letter form archive just down the road. Now, the reason right. I have all of this is because we don't, <laughs> well, in New Zealand, mate, we don't have typographic libraries on call we don't we have obviously archives and libraries and museums and things but not without a lot of fuck ton of effort trying to find the stuff you need so i was obsessive about auctions and getting actual specimens you know like this was before people were doing before the letterform archive was digitizing everything and putting it online and now some brides is on archive the internet archive Mm -hmm. and all the rest of it like it's it was important to me to have the actual things. Um, and it was pretty hit and miss. Well, I don't speak German, and I have a lot of German specimens. I've bought some <laughs> duds. I have bought some. I have. Let me find it. Oh, I can't find it right now. <laughs> I once thought I was getting a very good British specimen for 400 pounds. I was like, Fuck yeah, I've nailed it. I've scored. This is going to be good. I think I might have been an Edmund Fry specimen. I'm like, yeah, nailed mm-hmm. it. Got it. Thing turned up. I was excited. And it turned up and it was in this little envelope. I'm like, what the fuck? What's this? And I looked and I was like, what? And then my heart sank. And I'm like, oh my God. I bought eight pages of a disbound specimen. <laughs> and, I was, and I was sort of raging. And I went and looked at the email and the listing. I'm like, oh, yeah, it actually clearly states it. I got so fed <laughs> up. I thought I would have found this bargain. I spent 400 quid on eight pages, which I've never really looked at afterwards because I'm so burned by it. You know? <laughs> 
put it up. Put it up for auction again. Say, no, hey, this is the thing I can't. That's the best I could do on this. <laughs> but one day, I, you know, I might use it. That's the thing. That's the problem. This is what you've avoided is like the hoarder's instinct of. Oh, I'm still a hoarder. I'm just hoarding different stuff, power oh, right. tools and stuff like oh, that. Oh, power tools. Okay. Yeah. So when you got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago, you said uh, that you'd listened to the episode with Rutherford Craze. Yeah. And um, first of all, I'm I'm always blown away that anyone listens to this. But what in particular, because I thought about it, I was like, maybe there's a part of Chris that's listening to Rutherford and it's sounding like a a, a younger version of himself just because you're on the similar trajectory of being a kind of single person that's running this thing, you know? So was it that sort of thing or did you just kind of happen to enjoy the episode? Oh, no, I've listened to most of them, I think. Um, really? And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You must right. see, you must get the stats to see on all the platforms and see how many listens you get. All it tells us is the number of downloads which i think is streams and it's not very many so <laughs> i think it's like i don't know a couple hundred uh, uh per episode um well, i don't know i just thought we might like to have a chat also i thought you'd be more active on the future font slack but you're not really so this is a good no, chance to have a no. yarn any any slack that it, i am a supposed member of <laughs> i am absent i i do not check in you're pretty active on the future font slack though right well, it's because i see questions that come it's the same reason i write the blog post it's like maybe <laughs> these are questions these are all questions that i've had you know and i just wish someone had given me a fucking answer for it rather than having to struggle through and obviously, like, it's not like, you know, you should do this, but it's, I always try to frame it as like, well, we've had this and this is my experience, you know. Right. Because we didn't yeah. have, like, 10 years ago, there wasn't, as far as I can tell, there were some email lists, there was whatever, but there wasn't like what we have now with kind of the platforms of the chat platforms, you know. Mm -hmm. That's why we went to conferences so we could all catch up and gossip and figure out, you know, who was doing what to the best of our degree. Because Foundry's a notoriously... Still quite secretive, you know, but once you get mm -hmm. people talking, you get a lot of good information. I mean, useful What's stuff too, you know, like weird technical things or places to go and look for specimens or, you know, the talk is good. Mm -hmm. And I never had it also, like, you know, being over here quite a way away, like I was super jealous. Like I fantasize about going to KABK. You know, like, mm -hmm. but I was terrified of it because it was like the Dutch mafia. Like, these are the people who wrote all the fucking books that I was buying. It's like, it's like, you know, it's, it's it's miles away, and I've got two Dutch aunties who are very, like, as you say, dry and forthright. It's like, is it going to oh. be like that? You know, it's going to be like Auntie Nick. <laughs> Did you ever apply? No, I didn't because I was afraid. I didn't. I didn't think I'd, I was afraid of rejection. I thought it'd cost too much. I, I didn't know. I didn't know if I could handle it, you know. It looked, it looked kind of elite and kind of esoteric and I don't know. But I wish I had. Uh -huh. Some regret there. That's what I'm interested from you. You like went from some kind of college to that. Like it's quite a leap. How did you even find out about it? Blogs and stuff. Blogs and stuff. It, it, it really, it really didn't feel like a, a leap at all. I don't know. Maybe that was kind of a um, a, a thing about 
being American or, or being in California, like the cultural difference, if I'm going to be in San Francisco and I travel to Alabama or something, that's like, holy shit, I'm in a different place. If I'm in San Francisco and I go, I go to Amsterdam, it's like, it's very similar culturally. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a big jump. It was scary to, to be away and get homesick. And I got super homesick for sure. And it was very hard year, but it didn't ever feel like a choice. Even it was just like, clearly I would apply to type media. Just at least mm -hmm. try, you know? Yeah. I, I, like it's, I'd only ever been to Europe once before that when I was 18 and it was, like it's thirty six hours of hard transit. Like it's not an easy trip. I was also, to be fair, on the bones of my ass. I think Jess and I were living in Nelson, and we were sharing a tiny fucking little flat, and we were sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And it was we we're free. Like it was not. I was. It seemed. I don't know, man. Like I remember going shopping and stuff, and. <laughs> We had to budget for blue cheese. Like there was a splat, we're splashing out, get some blue cheese this week, which I proceeded to try and put into a muffin and I fucked it up. I sort of made a half muffin, half scone thing. And it was, and I just remember how disappointed we were because we'd blown five bucks on blue cheese, you know? And so to fly all the way to fucking Holland, you know, to learn how to draw letters, it, it didn't seem like a viable option. And I already had a student yeah, loan. Isn't that what you were doing in your spare time anyway? I didn't think it would work out. I didn't think oh. it would. Like I was trained as a graphic designer. I always thought I was going to be a graphic designer. I was working at a sign writing shop locally and trying to get work. And it never really, I was virtually unemployable. You were painting signs or you were doing no, vinyl? No, vinyl, mate. Not, not, I knew that would get a little... Reaction from you? No, not. It's, well, it's you not said, John you said sign writing. So hey, there's there's only you know you were sign, sign plotting, I think, which is sign plotting. Hey, yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> I was sign plotting. The worst thing is covering <laughs> trying to wrap vehicles in vinyl. It's so got to get the heat gun and the and the scraper. Oh God, um, weeding it all out. But like it was, and I was doing this on the side at night times, you know, just figuring it out. And it didn't, I don't know, it just never seemed like. And then it got to the point where I released Fajoa and I got my first royalty check for 900 bucks, I think, for a quarter. I was like, fuck, this is a thing. Like, this can work. Yeah. And then it just sort of gradually built up. Like, it's not like it wasn't a career path, you know. I just thought it would be something I liked to do. So when you were, when you just started and you were floundering, and you had Vajoa out and maybe a couple of other things. What were those questions that were like the burning questions where you wish you could just like go and straight up ask somebody at a conference or something, but you weren't uh, in Europe or in the States? I can't remember. Oh, honestly, I can't remember anymore. Like, I think that, I don't know. <laughs> you put a typeface together. Because this was during the time where I was kind of chatting a lot to Chester Jenkins from Village, and he's, mm -hmm. he, he's amazing. Like, he wasn't, it was more of a, he nurtured the foundries. It wasn't a reseller. Village isn't just, like, a straight-up reseller. Like, they would, Chester and Chasey would put in a lot of time with us and teach us how to do things, or teach me, I don't know about the others, but it wasn't like chucking it on my fonts or 
whatever the fuck else there was back then, you know, like it, it was you just you're just another product on on the lineup. Like it was felt like invested time and energy. Um, and also about that time, was in touch with Christian Schwartz to do Meta Seraph and Unit Slab, and I felt like that was a pretty hard. Those were pretty hard for me. Like you know, because it was Eric Spiegelman. When you know we're doing Seraph and Slab versions of his famous fonts, and it was just like holy shit. You know, I'm in the presence of greatness here. And I did, like it was just sort of felt like, you know, like I was I was learning so much, but it seemed like how did this happen? Why me? How am I like you know? It it just seemed too good to be true in a way. Um, and then I don't know, like it sort of one thing led to another. I think I got in at a good time. Digital for digital fonts, it was I'd say second wave, where people were becoming comfortable with buying things online, you know, um, and that wasn't a huge drama. You could just put a file on your site and put your credit card in and away you go um and pre-stripe this is all very difficult actually to set up but um it just a kind of one thing led to another very slowly i I had a lot of questions i think a lot of those were answered by christian and chester back in the day uh yeah you know like Um, a popular one for example how much do you charge for a custom font what's the price how do you figure that out and now, like, I think ever since Dynamo, Dynamo? Is it Dynamo or Dynamo? I say, honestly, both. I say Dynamo and uh, because I don't want to sound pretentious. I think that's basically my thought process going into it. It might be Dynamo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whatever. Uh, who cares? It doesn't matter. I'm also gonna say feijoa uh, for your typeface. Or oh, I'm I gonna say sohone for uh, whatever. Holy you know? shit, that's a good interpretation. Okay, how do you pronounce Adrian Frutiger's most famous typeface beginning with U? Univers. Oh, there we go. Is that how you actually say it though to your mates? <laughs> no, I would say universe for sure. Yeah, I love it. Um, who cares if you're someone who cares like really about this stuff i would say to put your energy elsewhere i know so um i mean i quite love it how people quite happily butcher all these names um dynamo dynamo they were i think the first ones one of the first ones to have a new pricing model but a part of their pricing model the whole thing was with what's the value where's the value coming from like i'm sure we all kind of talked about it but they're the, one of the first i think to say it out loud on the site it's like mm-hmm. Where is the value in a font and who gets the most value from it? And it's quite an abstract concept, you know, which comes around by how much do you charge for a font? Like we charge 50 bucks for a license for 15 years, man. Like that's not even keeping up with inflation or whatever inflation actually is. (laughs) You know, like in should fonts be more expensive or less expensive? Should they be, you know, where's the money? How do you turn letters into cash? Which is... Mm -hmm. Which is the age-old question, you know? How do you write a license? What are you charging for? Mm-hmm. Um, desktop was easy, wasn't it? It was just one thing. Now we have web and app and systems and OEM and enterprise. Oh my god! So how do you? Where, what's the metric? Um, and that's all really hard. Like I would, I've thought about this for a very long time. Is like. <laughs> In my mind, I call it the God license. It's like the one license to rule them all. How would mm-hmm. you put a value on fonts? And I think, I, I, 
it's really hard. It's almost impossible. Have you thought about switching to the Dynamo model? All the time. Every time we get an inquiry for some obscure platform or use case, it's like, oh, God, this would be easier if we just had a simple, easily understood metric. Um, But then we'd have, you know, 15 years of sales to convert to this. What about upgrades and what about that? And, like, we spent, Jess has spent so long getting, like, dealing with customers and getting licenses up that they want, that they ask for. There's a difference between what we want to do and what people want to buy, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know, what about you? Like, you look around, it's like, Rutherford's got a new system going. Every decision he makes is good. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, think uh, we've, we've talked about it too. I don't know. I think it's enough for us to not disrupt the licensing model that everyone is used to. And to just kind of go along with how people are expecting to license these things. I'm also not the one answering the questions anymore. So I honestly couldn't even tell you how much these questions are coming up these days for us. But I think our role in the kind of broader design community is just to do the stuff that we're doing. And I I started thinking about that when I watched um, the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix. Maybe Michael Jordan doesn't mean too much to uh, New Zealand. Oh, mate, I grew up uh, in the 90s. I know who Michael Jordan is. Come on. Did you watch the like, <laughs> like six-part miniseries? Or I haven't seen it yet, no. It's, it's great, but, I mean, it helps if you're into basketball. I'm not. I still enjoyed it. But anyways, Michael Jordan was just like win championships, win championships. He had one goal. He did not do like a ton of charity work. He wasn't politically active. There's just so many things that he didn't do because all he was trying to do was win championships. And like, that's enough. Like LeBron now, who would be like the modern day contemporary, whatever, is like doing way more stuff, you know, than Michael Jordan was ever even trying to do or thinking about doing. All he wanted to do is win championships. All we want to do is crank out pretty much interesting interesting display display fonts you know know? like that's that's kind of what i think our one thing uh, essentially is now we're branching into kind of bigger type system stuff but at the end of the day um i think that's kind of our bread and butter and and what we're most known for yeah um and it's interesting you kind of you know to loop that back earlier it's like mj just wanted to win championships but lebron now is involved in lots more things and it's the same thing like at one point you could just make fonts you know you could be robert slimbach at at adobe smashing out the fonts but now now you have to do podcasts you know and you've got your little you've got your (laughs) fancy mics you got your little spit thingy there for your microphone it's fun i mean that part's fun fun for me man i mean it seems fun like having a chin wag about fonts but yeah it's it's different now i think you kind of their expectation is that you are more that you do more and it's yeah it's pretty it could be pretty hard especially what are you looking at you keep looking over at oh we've got a window right right. there i can see my neighbor sue just give her a wave (laughs) i got a bit of (laughs) (laughs) all right um well 
I saw you answer one thing on the uh, Future Font Slack. I can't remember exactly what the point was, but it was something about you were kind of discouraging people from selling one $100 object <laughs> a thousand times and encouraging selling one $100,000 object one time. Do you know what I'm talking about, first of all? Is yeah. That- I mean, it's, a, it's the thing. It's like pricing fonts. Do you want to sell? Uh-huh. I don't know where I read this from, but it was you can sell $101 things or you can sell one $100 thing and you still end up with the same money, except one of them is going to have a whole lot more admin and stress and support, mm. you know. Mm. And some, you know, when you look at foundries like Line 2 and Optimo and stuff, charging 500 Swiss francs for a couple of mm. letters or whatever, it's, you think, man, that's really expensive. But then you think, well, firstly, there's no rules about how you price stuff. And secondly, you know, maybe it's a really viable strategy to sell one thing rather than 100 things for the same price. And it's just, I don't know, like it wasn't, I wasn't actually saying, you know, I wasn't advocating for selling a very expensive font. I was, it's just essentially trying to say, you know, is it, this is how to think about it. Because having 100 customers with fonts breaking in Microsoft Word is going to cause you a lot of headaches. Um, right. And that's, you know, like, where do you want to put the value in it? Like, it's at some point you think, yeah, if we have it cheap. The other thing is, like, if you have something cheap, you'll sell more of it, and that's not really a guarantee in the slightest, you know. Because mm-hmm. on the face of it, like, the, the sort of the base logic, like, oh, it's only five bucks. Well, heaps of people will buy it, but that's not really true. Right. Um, well, I don't think it's true. And I think it's a lot more complicated than just the sticker price. And this comes back to licensing too. Like, if people want your fonts, they'll use whatever model you put up in front of them, you know? Like, if you're charging Mm -hmm. company size, if you're charging the amount of fingers on your hand, like, I don't know, whatever metric you want to make it, they will, like, if they want your fonts, they'll pay for it in the way that you're asking. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a good way, maybe, because a lot of people are doing it now and they're still selling fonts, you know? Um, I don't know. Well, how did you figure out your prices? You just copy everybody else's like I did at the time? So I fucking average it out, like that'll be, that's that. It changes per project. Like Wolf Mono, for instance, is a whole family for $45. And that's just because it was intended for people that have maybe, maybe never bought a, a family before because so much of the Wolfpack kind of like fan base and stuff are just like musicians maybe people that are doing some amount of graphic design, but would never pay 300 bucks for a family or that's just like insane to them. I, with my pricing, I always incentivize the family. I think it's really important and ideal to get the whole thing. So it's, it's way, way cheaper to buy the family than the sum of all the styles. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just remember being, uh, a student and thinking like <laughs> wanted to I wanted to buy Mr. Eves when that came out from <laughs> for some reason that's something that stands out I was like ooh Mr. Eves came out this is so exciting they're the long-awaited sequel to their previous banger um and just it, it was like so expensive like I couldn't I couldn't really justify that 
But then I also bought auto from underwear when I was a student. And that was literally a whole month of rent, you know? So I don't know. I think uh, our fonts are pretty inexpensive is how I think about it. And our families are a way better deal. But I don't think I've figured it out. I really like the Dynamo model. It makes a lot of sense. It still seems like honestly a little bit confusing. Like if I go to the Dynamo site and try and check out, I'm like, this is actually kind of confusing for me. Um, maybe I'm the only one who has that experience or maybe that's the minority, but um, I'm just so used to doing it this one way. Um, to wrap up here, Chris, I want to ask you about this hypothetical situation of when monotype comes knocking <laughs> is is this something that has happened i mean there's no way i could uh, possibly have known if it has and if it, uh, it if not if it ever did what would be your reaction well to come and buy the library no yeah no it would just be a flat no. Like I just, I don't. I just, I can't. Okay, let's provide a little bit of context. Say you're, say you're pushing sixty. Say you're looking for a, a graceful out, and um, you got a, maybe a couple grandkids that you love spending time with, and. Noe and Dave and all these fantastic people that uh, you um, have employed or uh, employed as contractors have gone on to do other things. They're doing their own things, whatever. They're set up. They're good. All the people that, that you like are taken care of. And they say, hey, we want to give you tens of millions of dollars, maybe $100 million for <laughs> the entire library. That escalated quickly. What, what do you think? <laughs> $100 million. Still a flat no? I don't know. By the time I'm 60, which is 20 years' time, things might have changed. Mm. But $100 million is a lot of money, but I don't think anyone <laughs> would ever pay that. So it's in this fantasy scenario, mm, I don't know. Like this is like this is basically the price of my soul, isn't it? Like, what am I valuing <laughs> my life's work at? hundred mil, fuck, maybe. Yeah, but no, like in principle, I would. I don't know. I mean, it'd be good if you get a hundred mil and then you just push it straight to people who need it. Maybe it would be because at sure. that stage, at sixty years, I'd hope enough kind of money that I wouldn't need it. You know, it wouldn't be a desperate. Think of, yeah, think of what that could actually do for so many people. Yeah. I mean, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? But I don't think Monotype's ever going to splash 100 mil on, Who you knows? Know, who knows? I mean, but that's the thing. Like, I was thinking about this morning. Like, I never had an entry strategy, and now it's only now become obvious that we're going to have to have an exit strategy at some point. Like, what's your exit strategy? What are you going to do? How do you wind up a business? How do you, I mean, as, what do you do with all, like, because fonts live forever now. Like, they've fucking long right. lifetime, man. Like, what's the best thing to do? Do we package it up and hope that Indy wants to carry on? <laughs> you know? Well, I, I, I Your kid's going to take over owner? Can't, can't count on, yeah, if the, 
I've only thought about it since Dynamo sent out that kind of questionnaire, and uh, they they said what what would it be? And my opinion has always just been like, well, when when I die, the fonts will die, you know. And, and they uh, won't die; they'll live. They they don't die. You can't just yeah, delete them. But think of also of like my fonts will be Letraset at that point. You know what I mean? It'll it'll be a, a they'll be in a dead format. They'll be able to be converted into something else. I'm sure, but people will be using new fonts then that are designed at that point. I don't think I'm making classics. You know what I mean? I think I'm I'm riffing on classics. People will always license the classics, but I don't know if they'll they'll be stuck on Ekman Syke and Hobo and Ono Blazeface in a hundred years. Like, doesn't that seem a bit far fetched to you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. But I mean, the, there's other things to consider too, like copyright for stuff mm-hmm. lingers. Will be for seventy years, I assume, after you die. Fifty years after I die, mm-hmm. and what if somebody wants to use it? And you basically, like at the end, when it comes to the end, I think whatever it is, I want a clean break. Like I don't. Like if I'm out, I'm out. Like it's going to have to be all. I don't want to be slowly petering out. I don't want to be mm. have a little bit in. Or I, I think it would have to be a clean break. It's like no, I'm done. Would you just open source it all? I mean, that's the other nuclear option, isn't it? Um, But, I mean, if I've made enough money by that stage to be comfortable and I don't feel I need to profit anymore, that would be, that's a viable option. Like, I've made enough, here they are, fill your boots. And a license, Mm -hmm. you know, that people can take it and develop as they see fit. Because that's Mm -hmm. what we do. That's what we're, that's how we've built our practice. And I mean, this isn't sort of an ego point of view saying like fucking the great Fijoa revival of 20 fucking <laughs> 2095. <laughs> but it's like you'd want the things to be there that people can use. And I don't know, like how much, how much of it is ego, how much of it is greed and how much of it is just common sense. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to fuck up in the common sense thing. Like, if this is something that could actually be, like, uh, fruitful for my kids or grandkids, then probably best not to just throw it away or open source it all or or just kind of eliminate this asset that I spent my life making. I mean, as a parent, you would have written wills as well, I assume, like when your partner died, like in the God forbid you die, what happens to the kids? What happens to your assets? What happens to everything? What happens to your business? And the same sort of thing for like when we die, do we, if I've got a licensing agreement, say, with Monotype for whatever, and it's in perpetuity, does that mean my daughter has to fucking deal with it when I'm dead? Like, is she going to have to, like, what's going to happen? You know, Mm -hmm. how are these, Mm -hmm. because court cases for copyright and font stuff, I don't know. Who scratched around with that, but they happen with like Paul Renner's ears, for example, had to take Bauer to court in the 70s to get A, proper yeah. royalties, and B, royalties in other formats. And so, but does these things linger? Did they win? Do you know? I'm not sure. I guess so. Yeah, I think, I think they, I think they came to an agreement. But can you imagine your kids, like, you know, 
they have to take monotype to court for Ekman's sake because they're not getting enough royalties and hologram fonts or whatever the shit there is then, you know. <laughs> you don't want it to be a burden on your children. You don't want to keep this legacy that they that they have to deal with. Because, yeah. for example, when mum died, there's a lot of admin involved in death, you know, winding things up, dealing with physical yeah. things. And she had put a lot of stuff in place where... You know, it was all very cut and dried. But if she had died suddenly and then we, the kids, we had to figure it out, like it'd be very difficult. And especially if mm. it's copyright issues or, I don't know, viable products in the future. I mean, like it mm. all, it all sounds very heavy and serious, doesn't it? But it's like you've got a catalogue of work that has to be, has to be dealt with. Yeah. Got to do something. Got to put, put it in the name of the trust at least. And so there's an actual kind of course of action seems like bare minimum can i ask you when your mom died uh 20 it was before the pandemic 2019 i think might have been 2018 um that was pretty oh, she had a cancer for 13 years and tongue cancer and just couldn't Oof. had various operations and she had a lot of her tongue removed she couldn't really eat properly anymore and I just got to the point where she had a biopsy and it would come back and I can't do it anymore. And so she chose essentially to die, um, mm-hmm. which isn't something that's, it's not an easy choice. She was 64, maybe 65. Ooh. She's in her 60s. And so it, like there's, I cover a little bit of that in um, Signifier because that was happening at the time you know, work and life and just sort of bearing witness to somebody dying is very intense and there's fucking mm-hmm. nothing you can do about it. And it took a long time. Yeah. Like she uh, took about took several weeks, essentially, just slowly winding down. And it's mm-hmm. not a very, it's not a pretty sign. It's not. Yeah, siblings? Yeah, I've got a brother and a sister. So you were all dealing with it together or was it mostly yeah. falling on one? No, we were all kind of there together and sort of some other family members. But, um, like, that was quite shocking, I think. Like, the amount, like, the kind of emotional cycles that we went through. And we don't have euthanasia here, and it would have been maybe a case for that. I don't know. But, like, it's basically all you have to do, all you can do is sort of be comfortable in the grief as much as you can and just be a witness to it. And uh, mm-hmm. like I think some of that, um, yeah, you know. And if you're not religious, there's not much to fall back on, is there? There's no <laughs> God to appeal to. There's, there's not a lot, you know. There's just your yeah, own. Yeah, but but being being a witness, just the idea of being a witness to something, or or kind of like removing yourself from your body, is a sort of kind of spiritual act, I think. Or just to say like. I'm just here to take in what's going on. What else can you do but be a witness? Oh, mate, it's real. It's easy to say, but it's very hard to do. For sure, for sure. No, it's it's like the hardest. That's well, the hardest, I mean, and I think that yeah. changed a lot too, actually, in how I see work and how I see a lot of things and how I deal with stuff. And what do you mean? In what way? Well, around that, time, like fuck, that's. I, the same day, like we'd been there for weeks and weeks and she'd made me, you know, she made me promise that I was going to go because I was going to get the Arts Laureate 
an arts laureate that year and she said no matter Mm. what happens I want you to go and get it (laughs) I'm like oh okay all right and so the day that we sort of decided like we left at the last minute Jess and I were driving to the airport and to fly out to Auckland for um to go to the ceremony and the awards and my sister called and said mum's died and I'd been in that morning and I'd said to her you know I'm gonna go and all the rest of it and Mm-hmm. It's like, and I'm sort of sitting there, kind of halfway in the taxi to the airport, going, "Jesus, fuck! What do I do here?" Like, um, she said I had to go and get the award, but she's just died. But we've spent four years with her. Everyone, mm-hmm. you know, family, like, you've got to go. It was just like the pinnacle and the dear pinnacle of my career at that stage, and the the, the dear of my life. I was like, "Fucking hell!" It was mm-hmm. very hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, my sort of relationship, I think, to work has changed. Not long after we released Signifier, and that was a lot to do with nothingness and death Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of all those other things. But essentially, with that design information, like, it started with fonts and it ended with staring death in the face. Um, Mm -hmm. And coming back to originality in a way, like I still think Signify is the thing I've been wanting to do for 15 years. I've never actually told anyone that. But like mm. that's the font that's been in my head for fucking forever. Like it's the one I've yeah. wanted to do and it's the only one I think that I've done that's actually anywhere near original. And like once that had happened, all those fucking voices in my head, like you've got Van Blockland, I've got others. <laughs> all that expectation and sort of internal pressure just sort of lifted. It just kind of Mm -hmm. evaporated. It's like, fuck, I've done one. I've done one. And I'm happy with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I can relax, if that makes sense. Like it's, I don't know what your own personal drivers are or ghosts and demons and stuff, but like it was, like it felt like like I'd finally done it, you know. And like that was, and it wasn't an external thing. It was an internal thing, which is very important. Like to look mm-hmm. for external validation, like the dopamine hits from the tweets and stuff. Like that's good. It's a path to darkness, isn't it? That's not going to yeah. get it. <laughs> that is, it'll get you in the long run. But like to have that sort of like permission, gave it to myself. You know, you've done one. It's okay. You can fucking relax a little bit. <laughs> uh huh. Did you notice a difference in in how you? would uh, kind of talk to yourself or talk to other people, your own voice in your head or your own just kind of interpersonal uh, relationships? Yeah, like it's... Yeah, I mean, that because that coincided with quite a lot of um, therapy as well, which is mm-hmm. normal for you guys in America, not really normal for people in New Zealand. Like we don't, men don't talk about feelings. You know, like it's mm-hmm. a very stoic, toxic culture here, dude. Like it's really... It's as I grew up in, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to grow up someone who's interested in art in like provincial New Zealand, it's like, Jesus, just asking to get the bash in a way. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, it's not a manly thing to do. Um, but then you saw a therapist. Yeah, yeah. And sort of, and a whole lot of other things sort of changed as well. And, and now, like, having sort of witnessed mum getting signify out of the way therapy having a kid Mm -hmm. having a loving relationship and it's just sort of a lot of things kind of 
didn't seem so intense anymore. Or work things, you know. It's like, mm. you know, <laughs> it's like, does the world need another Kazlon? I don't care. Like, I'm going to do it, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> we've got enough fonts out there, you know. I've, but the climb is ticking along all right. Like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you know. Uh-huh. Imagine sitting there your whole life trying to predict what the market wants to buy. That would yeah. be, imagine, can you imagine in 2032 when you've accepted your $100 million offer <laughs> from Monotype and you're now workshopping your future releases in a room of Monotype creatives and suits yeah. and everything? Can you imagine? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I don't <laughs> think that's the, the deal that I would be looking to take. I don't know. <laughs> I like your clean break idea a little bit more than that. But uh, I love this idea of giving yourself permission to relax. I think that's a huge, huge idea that is, I mean, also easier said than done, but still is probably one of the, the most important things we could do. Yeah. Like, can you imagine as a young designer... As a young, someone's starting out, and you really just want to do a geometric sans, but you've got 400 type Twitter accounts in your head saying, oh, another geometric sans, we don't need that, but you really want to do it. And you've got that whole kind of inner industry, you know, ambience, like the ambient hatred for geometric sans, but then you've got like, you know, the people who actually buy them, all the designers, they fucking love them, they just don't give a shit. You know, like every restaurant has a hamburger or a steak or a soup, and they don't. Do you think chefs go around wringing their hands, going, "Oh God, you know, Gordon Ramsay's going to tell me off for having a burger"? And like, do we care as consumers? Like, you and I are wearing t-shirts. Imagine if fashion brands were like, "Fuck, we can't do a t-shirt, mate." Like everyone's doing t-shirts. Ooh, another, another pair of jeans. Ooh. You know, like, this is what I mean about the classics and the standards and the shit that's available along in all companies. Who cares? You know? You want to make some T-shirts? Make some T-shirts. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's taken me a long time to kind of get there. I, It's just, it was an easy thing to kind of pick on, you know? And then as time went on, I was like, why am I fighting this so hard? And then... I kind of realize it's fun. Any any typeface I'm working on is fun for me. Doesn't really matter at the end of the day what it looks like. It's still the same act mechanically. And I don't know. It took an embarrassing amount of time to figure that out. It also took a, a really long time to figure out how financially stabilizing something like that in your catalog can be. God damn it. Like that's the other thing, you know? Like this is what people buy and this will f- yeah. form a like a financial backbone so you can go and right. do the other stuff. It's like, imagine shying away from what the market actually wants. Like this is... Right, right. well, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a, not a business thing. That's an art thing or something. I don't yes. know. It can be a business thing too, but... I would love to know where these ideas actually permeate from within the type industry. It's like sort of this aversion to making neo-grotesques and geometrics, like, you know, and this other kind of distaste, it seems, for marketing. It kind of like it's, I don't know exactly where it is, but you kind of get it here and there. It's like, oh, they're advertising again. Oh, look at that. Oh, it's just another grotesque sort of thing, you know. I don't, I don't, I the distaste for marketing, I totally understand because 
all these people that are running foundries didn't get into it because they were super interested in marketing. Or I bet the people that did are like crushing it now, you know? I think it's just a, a, a very specific type of person or designer that has had such lucky success in all things related to this one very small area of design. And then as soon as they have to branch out of that, they realize like, oh, this isn't something that I'm super passionate about, or it's not something that I'm kind of naturally good at like I was with the other stuff. So, I mean, I, I totally get it. Marketing, I think for me is fun because... I've given myself permission to relax, you know, I've given, <laughs> I've I've given, given myself, myself the per permission to experiment or, or to have fun with it or to know that we can do it in whatever way we want to do it and just try, just at least see how it goes. Yeah, I know, and if you, you have know. to see another waterfall specimen, you're going to just, God, quit. Yeah. What's your problem with the waterfall <laughs> specimen? <laughs> waterfall yes. specimen's fine, but it's not marketing, is it? It's like, you know, I'm, it's a trade catalog. Like the, I think it's it's a form. It's just it's just you know square one. Like it's I mean they're good and we like them, but it's not really it's not marketing. And I like like as soon as we started paying back in the alt group to start coming up with campaigns and even naming fonts and stuff. It's like man, this is awesome. this is this is fun. Like because I can be the client and I can sort of I can be an annoying client, but I can also you know like it's. <laughs> to go through the kind of creative art direction aspect of it, it's really interesting and the ideas and kind of rejecting stuff for campaigns and then know this is the thing we're going to do. And like, that's really, that's more interesting now than making the fonts in a way. Like it's really, yeah. Like a, a fonts are the easy part, Like that's the easiest part. It's like drawing a font, but now it's like, how do you frame it? How do you talk about it? How do you, did they, did they name signifier? Did they name yeah, Dean, the, the future? Oh, uh, Dean Paul from alt group named Untitled Sands and Serif. I was going to call them Common Sands and Serif, but that was already taken. And so he came with up with Untitled and came up with that whole kind of marketing strategy. Oh, really? Yeah, like, he, like that's what I mean. Like someone else, like it was in the ballpark and like I could just go like, this is what they are, like this is how I made them. And he kind of came up with it. And then like there was a whole thing around them and it, you know, like it was, it worked. They, like it was insane. Like the Untitled Sands and Serif still had their own Instagram accounts that only follow each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, that's not something I would think of, and it's I would not have the time pages to upload all those things. But they exist, and it's like this weird. Like, he comes from an he's an art background, and so it's art thinking. And he named Signifier, but Kelvin so. I uh, did the campaign for it. Signifier was a really long, hard naming process. Actually, I wanted to call it something else, something stupid. Um, and what did you want to call it? Can't even remember now. It's just something dumb. It's not even good because now it's Signifier. Like it's, you know, that's it. Um, right. The National 2 campaign of going around New Zealand with the signs and photographing those. Like who? <laughs> that's like Jensen and L. Jensen from Alt Group and Al Guthrie, the photographer, traipsing around New Zealand with fucking signs of font I, of weird names. I thought that was photoshopped. No, man, that's 100% real. They went all the way around New Zealand. And this is the thing, like, you could photoshop it, but if you're with Alt Group, you're in for a penny and for a pound. Like, you go the whole fucking way, man. Like, those are proper... Like, Al's a proper photographer and these are proper locations. Like, that's all... 
This is what I mean. Like, this is insane stuff. Like, they would chop it up to the top of fucking mountains, take photos. It's a promo of font. You know? And, like, once you start doing that, you're like, oh, yeah, let's get into this. Like, this is awesome. Uh-huh. It becomes your yacht, basically. Your yacht. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your expensive habit. That, uh, <laughs> that is <laughs> it's like your, your kind of hobby, your fun thing. Oh, uh, maybe. It is, it's not... I mean, it's necessary because, you know, you've got to market the font somehow. But once you've kind of, once my eyes were open to this, like it was like, mm. oh, you know, we can. And, like, and Jess said that you should always, because she had come from a marketing background. She's like, you know, marketing budget should be, I don't know, eight, I think eight to 10% of your revenue. Like you should set mm. that amount aside. And like that's, and once you kind of have that mindset, it's like we've got a chunk of money that we need to use to running ads, running mm-hmm. campaigns, all the rest of it, then it's fine. Instead of kind of sitting there going, geez, are we going to spend that much? Oh, I don't know. It's only font. That's in the budget. It's in the budget, mate. Got to use the budget. <laughs> I love it. I've never thought of it. Because who would know? What sort of type designer is just like Joe Schmo, independent type founder, single person shop, knows that? A marketing budget is 8 to 10%. I had no idea. I mean, like, there's different rules of thumbs, but, you know, that's... Like, if you set it aside, like, yeah, then you've got room to flex and you're not sitting there trying to, you know, do it on a shoestring because you're not sure. And that's what I mean. Like, it takes about four or so years for those numbers to kind of get a picture of, like, you know, is it successful or not. But if you're... Set, like, if you're advertising one font, you're actually advertising your foundry, aren't you? Like, you go in. Right. right. Like, we spend... I. My whole, the whole point of the website, the whole sorry, the whole point of campaigns and stuff, is to get people on the website. The website is where you have the waterfall specimens, you download the whatever. That's for selling. Like the campaigns, that's why we don't really show the fonts. It's like, oh, what's this? You know, go to the site. You know, I don't want people looking at fonts on Instagram. That's not where they should be looking at them. They should be going to my website. You know, to look at them. Then yeah, they, but they are going to look at them on Instagram. Yeah, but you want them to get on the site. The whole point of Instagram is not to be on Instagram. It's to get them off onto Glim, <laughs> you know? like Insta- it, Yeah, yeah f- totally. But, I mean, Instagram is, like, so bad at exactly that. I know. It is the, the worst thing. Oh, it is, and you can't boo fonts as products, only physical things. You know, you can't. Like, if you had an Instagram shop that could plug in, imagine that. That'd be pretty sweet. But I don't even know if it would work. Like, people don't make impulse purchases, as far as I can tell. On fonts, people make impulse purchases from our catalog, <laughs> but just single styles, you know, not the whole family usually. Yeah. So all uh, right, yeah. Let's wrap it up, man. This is, um, I think, by far the longest podcast episode that we've ever done. So I gotta give it up to you for episode number twenty-four, Oof. setting a new Ono Radio record. Um. Really, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit and chat to me. It looks like you've been extremely relaxed through the whole conversation. I don't know. Is this just how you always are? Um, yeah, I guess. Like, what's <laughs> this is a non stressful situation for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The stakes couldn't be lower. I the think. stakes <laughs> couldn't be lower. It's a what? Two hour conversation where I talk about me. Like, how fucking awesome was that? <laughs> all right well you know you've you've won every award you've received every accolade um personally i think the coolest thing that you're doing is 
kind of what's happening on the feature font slack honestly if if you're encouraging and helpful um and uh you know setting a good example of of how to run these weird types of businesses in a good way then that's awesome and your credit to the industry so thank you so much for coming on board yes it is man no worries Huge thanks again to Chris, and thank you, dear listener, for being ever so patient with the erratic release schedule of this podcast. You know, I hope this podcast doesn't wither and die like so many other Onosite projects before. Also, if you want us to keep going and you haven't left an irrationally positive endorsement for us on Apple Music, I'd totally appreciate it if you did. Music is provided by Wolfpack. Editing is thanks to Brandon Burke. Jamie Otelsberg helps out with all sorts of things over here. Please buy our fonts. That's going to be my new marketing strategy going forward. Going to be a little more direct. Buy Ono fonts. It's like those old-fashioned ads that just say, like, drink Coke. We aren't going to beat around the bush anymore, okay? Rule number one, buy Ono fonts. Rule number two, see rule number one. Did you know the last two hours have all just been an ad? Crazy, right? Love you. Bye.